0: Hello, it's Adam here from the UK True Crime Podcast. Last weekend, I was at CrimeCon in London. had an absolute blast. And one of the highlights for me was interviewing live on Sunday afternoon a new author, Jason Wilson, about his book, The Old Man and Me. Really interesting to see Jason. Uh, The book's fantastic. Go and buy it. And what follows now is my interview with Jason, Live in front of a CrimeCon London audience last Sunday, talking about his book, "The Old Man and Me." I hope you enjoy it. I'll speak to you soon. Okay, wonderful. Thank you ever so much for um, coming to join us in the sauna this afternoon. Um, my name is Adam. I'm the host of the UK True Crime Podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined today okay, by you, Jason Wilson. Yeah. So, has everyone read Jason's book, "The Old Man and Me"? Please, maybe show show of hands if you read it. I just bought it. Okay. So a couple of people read it, a couple of people had not So, Jess, maybe you can just start just by telling people here just why you decided to write this book.
1: Um, my father died in 2015. I'd worked for him over the years. He was a career criminal right from the 70s, right from the age of bank robbers and frauds, right into the era of the drug dealer. Um, and during that period, I'd worked for him. And when I worked for him, I thought it'd be great if one day someone could write this down and show what it was really like rather than what you'd see in films and in other books. And then, like, 15 years later, he passed. And after a period, I did think it would be nice to write all this down and write his life down um, and actually kind of uh, correct the record, so to speak. In my my city, he was known for becoming a millionaire and imploding by robbing a bank and really uh, ballsing the whole thing up. Mm. Um, But he had a long career as a criminal, and he did go very high up. uh, He'd become a crime boss for, like, 20 years. So he was real high level. And I thought it would be nice to write his story. Um, but also there was the first approach was really to do a, your standard book which is a, a biography yeah. and I, that didn't really pe- appeal to me because it was just another a uh, criminal story, maybe glamour and that didn't really appeal to me um, but being brought up by him and working with him the questions I always asked about him was when I was younger, was he a good man uh, because he was known for a lot of um, issues with guns and shooting people and this sort of thing, There's a lot of rumours and then when I was older, it was a case of why was, why was he like this? Why did he keep doing this? Because he, he did seven sentences and he would serve 25 years in all. And every time he came out, he came out more confident than ever. He was going to make more money. He was going to, you know, he was going to have more of everything, basically, because he was better, more disciplined, smarter. Hmm. And he did it every time. And every time he came out, he was just as fearless as the time before. But like the prison was no deterrent at all.
0: So you just really wanted to get that, the facts out there. And yeah. And- there's a load of gangster books, aren't there? I don't know about you, generally gangster books, I try and avoid gangster books, because one, I don't believe half of it. I think most of them are accountants in Manchester. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think they're gangsters. And two, it's just the sort of cliche, isn't it? The cliche of these gangster books. So the lady at the back there who's read the book, did, did you think that Jason avoided those gangster cliches from what you read? I thought
1: it was, it was, it's actually really unusual to get an individual story out of the sort of the underworld, As such usually you have a third party writing about it, so when you get somebody who has a lived experience with criminal, like a lot of people would be too scared to write the book you wrote, yeah. a lot of people would think it was repercussions, they would
0: avoid it or they would do it anonymously. I think having you at the centre of the book, you're telling your father's story,
1: you're telling your story, is really quite unique. Yeah, that, that was the thing. I wanted to do something first-hand. And to do that, I've got to put myself in the story. Yeah. Uh, because when things are 2nd it's all reported and it's all police references and uh, court reports. My story is kind of first-hand. I was actually there when all this was happening.
0: But it's very, it's very raw. You talk about repercussions. So both within your family and from the criminal underworld, if that's the right expression, have you had repercussions?
1: No. I I mean, I may have done if I'd wrote it slightly differently. Hmm. As I was writing the book, I was kind of getting feedback on a few situations and thinking, well, you can't really name that person because he is still active. And this other person, because of his temperament, you don't want to... And at the same time, I couldn't go around these people individually and say, I'm writing a book, do you mind? Mm. Because the, the idea of you writing a book would scare a few people and they would think the worst that I'm naming names and yeah. all this sort of thing. So I just tried to tightly frame it around my, me and my dad's story. I know there's lots of villains come in. They still, If they're active now, I'll put them under aliases. And there's a few that, well, they were convicted with him, so as far as I'm concerned, they should be named. They've already been named. There's a few that were supergressors or informants, and I think I'm free to name them, really, because hmm. some of them have been exposed anyway. Um, so there's a list of people I could name, and then just a few that it would be daft not to. There was one who was in, in one of the later drafts, and my brother read it, and he said, you've got to take him out. Right. And I followed his advice. That turned out to be very good advice. Yeah. Um, so when the book did come out, just before, there was a few people in Holland and Spain found out about the book, and they are in touch, a little bit panicky. They hmm. saying, we've heard you doing this book, and am I in it, was one thing and what have you put and sort of thing. Uh, they did emphasize, they kind of trusted me on it because I was my dad's son and all this sort of mm. true crime sort of... I thought it was a bit of flattery, really, basically, just to say, you are on our side, you're one of us still. And I was like, yeah, it's about me and my dad. It's not about your lot or the. this is about my dad's story and my story. So I've kept it tightly framed. Uh, so they, they got copies and they've not come back. They seem fine with it.
0: Okay. Um, I mean, your dad did actually kill someone, didn't he?
1: Yeah, he did. He killed a, a guy called David Royal in Holland, um, there was a shootout over... A, it was a, some stolen money to do with a drugs deal. Um, and they attempted to kidnap my dad because he he was negotiating the money back and they just didn't want to give the money back. And they thought the best idea was to get rid of this old gangster figure who, as far as they're concerned, they could take him out because he wasn't part of a big family or anything. You could actually remove that piece and you probably wouldn't get the big comebacks on it. Um, so they tried to kill him. And they did shoot him in the chest. They grabbed him at, a, at the car at... A, in northern Amsterdam, uh, shot him in the chest, but he had a gun on him, and though in movies, of course, you would go down if you shot him in the chest, but mm. in real life, he was stunned, steadied himself, produced his gun, and just started shooting, and the main guy who set it up, he shot him in the chest and killed him. There was a guy called, a drug dealer called David Royal, who, everyone in northern England was terrified of him at the time. There's Nottingham crime lords who were scared of him. He was considered quite sinister, he was ex-military, so he was quite comfortable with guns and uh, planning certain things, and um, so he, he killed him uh, and that's really where the book does start Yeah, because it was at that point uh, he phoned me within hours of that saying can you get over to Amsterdam there's been a problem I got a few people we went over and then after that everything turned on its head um, when someone gets shot you, especially shot in the chest you think they're done for they've gone but in his instance it was a case of no 24 hours, 48 I can get through this because the, the bullet part, mostly passed through him there were fragments still within him. And he was he was in a bad way and he slipped in and out of consciousness, but he was he was getting better. And we were just waiting to see if he'd pull through. And he kind of got to the apartment. All the phones were off because usually there's five or six phones always on and they're always going, there's always visitors. But this time it was absolute silence. All the phones had been dumped and it was just waiting to see whether he'd pull through or not. And it was during that period as he started to go in and out of consciousness and he was trying to recover, I realized he had no regrets for anything he ever did. And he had no, he had no words for family. Like I was his son, and he had no like, you know. If I don't pull through, I just want you to know, or send a message to your mom that I always, you know, there was no sentiment there whatsoever. It was just, it was the business of, I need to get it. I need to get things back together. I need to recover of all these deals to sort
0: out. That's one of the things about the book, though. When you read the book, you find that your dad didn't ever want to reminisce with the past. There's a very striking part towards the end of the book when an old friend hasn't seen him for 30 years, come to stay with him. wants to talk about old times, as maybe we might do with our friends. But your dad has got no interest.
1: No, he never, ever looked back. It was just his nature. I think the years in prison, you've got that mentality, you're always looking forward you've made your mistakes you've learned from your mistakes you look forward and that's what life is about it's always about that what's happening next or what you're going to do mm. and he always thought about that and when he was out he never changed because he had these plans uh, a long list of plans and all these contacts and it was always what i'm doing tomorrow and he was always making these lists of what he's going to do and then hours later he was shredding them. but it was constantly all about the future never about the past um my relationship was slightly different because because i had that history with him and if i was driving for him i it, when I was a kid, I could always ask him anything; he would always answer, them, no matter what, what it was. Mm. And it was the same when we grew up. But there were certain guidelines, obviously. When you're in a car or in a, in a familiar place, or a potentially bug place, you don't talk. But I could ask him about things like deals and people, and you know, um, c- kind of processes in the criminal world and how it worked. I could ask him that, and he would he would just answer me on those things it was it was quite unique in that he wouldn't do that with other people but also i was very curious as well
0: it's, it's an awkward question to ask you jason but chinky used you like he used everyone else
1: and i think his yeah it was very practical that way because everybody has a function and that's what your friendship they're all mm. i mean the criminals they, they they're not friends they're all associates when a criminal like when my dad would get arrested there'd be raids you go down he's in prison all of a sudden a lot of these friends aren't friends they, they cut their phones they don't get back in touch they're all out for themselves and if they think you're going to get a long sentence you won't hear from them again and that's the way they are it's kind of ruthless you're like a commodity if they think you're getting out all of a sudden they're getting in touch they might want to do you a favour or two mm. and that's the way it is and for him that was a matter of fact it's kind of once you go away you go away um, and your family's kind of irrelevant all this in, in films where they look after families and that's just nonsense they just don't do that if anything it's the opposite when when I was like eleven years old, and he went to prison for bank robbery, you got a ten years. There was people around the cities claiming they were sending our family money to look after us every week. Hmm. There was like three or four of these villains saying this, going around boasting, and none of them, none of them called round. No favors. It was always family, our own family that helped. Yeah. But The criminal world, they didn't do anything. It was quite exceptional for anyone actually to do a genuine favor because um, it's all it's all business really.
0: But when you were having dinner with your dad and some of his criminal associates. I get the impression you, you quite enjoy that element of risk in the conversation. You know, the stakes are high, aren't they? Yeah, they are, I
1: think. Well, I went to work with them when I was about 25, 26. And one thing, my background was in art at the time, I was an animator in London. And when I went, I was like a fish out of water. And mm. one thing I did realize the more I know about this, the safer I am. And that's what, you know, doing pickups, drop offs, the more you know, the safer you are. So the more you know about surveillance, great. And the fact is, I could ask him anything, and he would tell me. He'd tell me about the trackers, the bugs, the undercover officers, the patterns when you're driving, you know, not going back on yourself. When you drive, always go around a route, don't go back. You know, and all the little uh, the police procedures for following you. He'd, he'd explain all that sort of stuff. So he was kind of schooling me in it, really. And I thought, the more I know, the safer I am. Hmm. And that's the approach I took. And he never really steered me wrong on that. But if I wasn't working for him, he wouldn't phone. Yeah. And that's, that, that's kind of a slightly hurtful thing, because... For him, well, if you're doing something for me, that's how we relate to one another by doing stuff. If you're, I'm not doing anything for you, you're doing nothing for me. Why are we having anything to do with each other? I could be seen, you know, and that—that's just the way he was.
0: Tell tell the audience a little bit here about um, the huge sums of money you carried into other countries and the risks that that posed. Uh,
1: well, there's a lot of you've kind of you've got the money and you've got the product, and you keep them separate all the time. The money is quite low risk because you're only going to get confiscated. As long as you keep your mouth shut, you're only going to get confiscated with money. So when you go into other countries, that's the risk you're taking. You're not going to get a long prison sentence or anything, but you are looking at a lot of inconvenience. But
0: you were carrying thousands of pounds,
1: weren't you? Yeah, I don't want to talk too much about the actual money. But yeah, it was kind of, you'd see millions of pounds. It's like every month there'd be... I mean, if I was a driver and I was collecting a couple of hundred thousand, I know there's other drivers also collecting. Mm. So there's a lot of money coming in. Mm. And it's coming all around the country. It's just in bundles and bundles. And your job is just to grab it, check it, and uh, move it on. Mm. Uh, and the fact you're related, you're completely trusted, because you get a lot of drivers with sticky hands and mm. uh, looking for opportunities for, like when money's moving too quick, it's the ideal time to put your hand in and grab something, because mm. they ain't going to know who's nicked it. So, And you're a lot of dishonest people around, so... Uh, the fact I was his son, he could trust me 100% was one of the reasons why yeah. he would trust me on that. Because he knows relatives, you just you can trust your relatives with whether people you met in prison, you
0: you just don't know. It's all, it's all a game to him, is it? You talk about, I forgot what it's called, but it's oh, all a game. cops and robbers. Cops and robbers. Yeah. Ex- maybe explain that to the guys. That's the Eric so, yeah.
1: Byrne theory, isn't it? Uh, I came across that years later. I, I studied for psychology and I did my degree and everything. And one thing I came across was the cops and robbers which is Eric's theory of uh, criminals why they do what they do and for some of them it's about accumulating money and profit and they really do want to have the big house and they and they just want to be left alone and they want all the rewards but for some of them it's a game really and that's what it's really about it's about having this exciting lifestyle where you can do anything you can do all these things you would really only any fantasies you can do but the amount of money you generate you can do anything and for them it's about that and it's about competing with you've got a competitor which is the police and their surveillance who you hardly ever see but you know are out there and it's about beating them showing them you're cleverer than they are Uh, and that's what i think for him it was Mm. it was always this great game the most exciting game like i think it's mentioned you can be kind of addicted to this this game of you come out you make stacks of money they're after you and you're doing all these things that are going to come up they're going to come up after you and get you in the end but while you're free, you get away with so much.
0: But, but in the press, they always referred to your dad later on as like this um, having millions of pounds stashed. But he didn't, that, did he?
1: No, that's kind of mythical. Um, I mean, one reason, he always knows the doors are going to come in some, one day. Um, so you don't want to have loads of money sitting around for them to say, oh, we're confiscating that, this is evidence you've done this and you've evidence you've done that. He always, whatever he came in, went straight out. And he was always like that. If he earned a million pounds in a month, he would spend a million two or a million and a half. Mm. And that's what he did. Whenever he was out, he always he was always speculating to accumulate like a businessman. Mm. And he always thought that. Uh, so he never – and some of the other criminals did accumulate money. And that's where you get back to Eric Burns. Some of them were clearly in it to make the money and keep the money. But a lot of them were. It was about the game because when they got arrested, they were potless. Yeah. And a lot of them were like that. And that's when – I mean, when I see things about like Curtis one's got 200 million, I completely doubt it because I've been in those circles and you see where the money just goes everywhere because everyone wants to get paid way more than what they deserve. And the guy at the middle is so busy. He's just, you know, he's so caught up in it. Um, It's not really about the money for him. It's about the game he's playing. And it's a game of superiority with the police and who's cleverer. And uh, I mean, the consequences are pretty terrible when they come, but they kind of live to play the game again once they get out again. Once they're inside, it's all about gearing up for the game once they're released, of that, you know, working on cases, retraining yourself, getting fit, accumulating contacts and knowledge. So day one, when you come out, you're better than you were before, and you're going to do it all over again, and this time you're going to be better and smarter. And uh, and that's what my dad was like every time he came out.
0: Why don't we tell the audience here a little bit about the, the, the way that he transported the drugs from north africa to spain because he's a meticulous planner wasn't he
1: but it's, i mean it's a difficult one because if he was a group of brothers you'd have them all in different places you know like a team but his operation was all about him so when he came out of prison he was kind of bringing it in he was like a, a wholesaler i suppose and then once he got a license he could start traveling started importing and then he moved over to the smuggling but you couldn't do the whole lot except he would try so he it'd, it'd be down in spain at the bottom of spain order up Kind of organizing the payments for the the goods and everything then he'd be up in Holland organizing the transport to get it into the UK and then he'd be over into the UK to organize the distribution collecting of the money back to Holland and Spain and it's absolutely intense mm. it's like busy it's like a stockbroker it's just constant because you're trying to do all these roles between Spain and the UK uh, but some of the like the gangs here will just do one thing They'll just, bring, you know, I don't want to do all the import and the smuggling and all that trans. I just want to just drop this stuff. I make a fortune off it, and I'll be a big fish in a big pond. And in my city, everyone I know, you don't mess with me. And there's a lot of like criminal gangs like that, but there's not many who are international and who are actually skilled at it and do it for very long. Uh, but that's what he, when he was out, he managed to do do that. But it was he was a workaholic to, in order to do that. It would have been easier just to do something smaller and more profitable than yeah. trying to do, wear five different hats and do everything and control everything.
0: And trust is a thing, isn't it? So if you get caught, it's because someone's betrayed you, right, most of the time. So yeah. was he a good judge of character, do you think? Is that why he was successful?
1: I, I think he was great judge of criminals. Right. Because uh, when, when you're in prison, you're in this microcosm of reading people and reading people correctly and what they do and judging their habits. And it works very well when you're in prison with dysfunctional people or people who are vulnerable who are trying to play the system. But when you're out, you, you come across people who aren't like that. And who do have kind of like a conscience and who do want to occasionally do the right thing, like altruistically, all for themselves. But And he was, wasn't very good at judging people like that too well. And they, that for me, that's where the problems come. There were people, you'd work with them and you think, well, you can't trust him, you shouldn't have him working for him, and would say so. He said, "Nah, he's all right. He's all right." And sure enough, we would be right. Mm. But we were used to judging people like that. But when it comes to the criminals, he was great at judging them. Mm. Be like, no, he'll shut up. He won't say a word, and he'd be right. And he'll say he'll do this, and he'd be correct. He'd be very good at judging criminals, mm. but non-criminals, he wasn't so good at judging them. So,
0: really, do you think he was? A, I mean, he spent twenty-five years in prison. Yeah, his life was he a was he a successful crook? Um, Is that successful if you're in prison for twenty-five years?
1: It depends on your measurement. If you measure yeah. it in terms of money, then you'd say no. Mm. But if you in in terms of Mez playing this game mm. he played it more than anybody as a player like a, mm. a gambler he, he, like I said he had no regrets even when he got shot he had no regrets about what had happened because and at that point he'd spent about 17 years inside mm. he'd done about 5 sentences but he had no regrets and that's what I expected he was but no regrets whatsoever mm. he was kind of the. the I overheard him speaking to a girlfriend once and she was like she was having a go at him for this time he'd spent inside and it was like no, I've, I mean I've robbed a bank. Who do you know has robbed a bank? He said I counted, tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> when all around, the, how many people do you know who've done that? He was absolutely proud of these things he'd done because mm. to him, and, and this, you get caught for the one percent of things you do. Yeah, but you've got all these ninety nine percent. You never got caught. Of, and you have got the satisfaction of I did that fraud and no one ever got me for that. Or I did those bank robberies and I got rid of. Ev- I got away with every one. Just that one at the end, that's the one that got me. That's the one that tripped me up.
0: And he was quite old school, wasn't he? He's was quite, I hate hes a cliche again, but quite a gentleman, treated people well most of the time. Do you think those days are gone now?
1: And from what I could see, he was, I mean, he was he was called the old man because he was kind of old school. He was like a senior. He wasn't called the old man because he was my dad. He, um, on the phone, used code names and he kind of John to Pat, then English John when he was in Holland. But gradually we started to call him the old man because he was slightly older than everyone else because we were all in our 30s and 20s, and he was senior. And that's what why we started calling him that. Um, I don't know, I forgot the question. I was drifting there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, but nowadays, I mean, the gangsters... Oh, gangsters, yeah, yeah. But that, yeah, that's
1: the thing. Amongst the group, he was considered old school. Yeah. And the people we relied on in the different cities, they were kind of all old school as well. But then he started to deal with some of them who weren't, and they were the ones who... Some of them I don't write about in the book because I'd have trouble if I did. But they were the ones who were, would rob off you, and he had no morals at all. And they were the ones who, when he was on the run, were taking advantage of him greatly. And those I don't write about because there's no benefit in that. And there's no, got no scores to settle. It's just a part of the game, as far as he's concerned.
0: And that's quite interesting as well. So when, when when your dad is unwell, he doesn't want to show weakness, does he? The second he's feeling a bit better, yeah.
1: That time he, he gets shot. That. The time he got shot in Holland, it was a case of by the following morning there's some sort of recovery going on and his first thing is the next morning he's up getting a shave because he wants people around he wants you know the dutch people to be over and he wants to let them know yeah we are going to sort these deals we were in the middle of but they've got to see that he's okay they can't just get it over a phone call because they know he's been shot Mm. so they have to actually come over and they have their meetings and the result is the next day we have a couple of dutch people and they're working on one deal and then another couple of dutch but they start overlapping so they start filling the apartment and then some of them have to start going outside. And it's like a, it is like a funeral or something where you get all these, you know, all these different people coming and they're all being quiet and low profile and they're all try, you know, not trying to draw attention, but inside you think, Christ, if the police were to come in now, it would just be have a field day. <laughs> but they're all desperate to get these deals because they think he's going to be out of Holland within a, like a, a day or so, because he has to be really, because the police are looking for him. Um, but that's the thing. When he was recovering, it was all about these deals he had his spanish deals and his dutch deals and his british distribution and he didn't want anyone breaking down or people losing confidence because he if you're kind of out of the game as he might put it yeah. the people you owe money they disappear because they think well, hey i'm not paying that now i might owe hundred underground i'm not paying it and the people he owes underground they think for christ's sake we need to where's his family we need to let them know we're close by because we want them to know you've got to pay us so that's one of those times where you realise very few friends amongst the criminals. Mm. There's a few. The only exceptions were the old school ones who we had confidence in. Doesn't matter what happens to him, he gets ten years or whatever, they're still going to be there. Uh, but a lot of them aren't like that. But the younger ones weren't like that at all. Just a different mentality. They're just not old school at all.
0: And violence is interesting. Your dad tended not to show violence, and when you saw him with a gun or heard he had a gun, yeah. that shocked you, didn't it?
1: yeah um i mean in the in the 70s there was lots of rumors with guns because commentary was like a, the wild west um but when he came out in 96 i was mid-20s times had changed he was a lot more mellow then and he saw violence and gun use as like a weakness mm. because you're trying to do a business and every time you have a conflict with people you have to change everything because you have to change where you're doing your business and you have to stop watch you start watching certain people to deal with you want to be able to deal with everybody have no enemies uh so he'd become very anti violence when we were doing the, the drug stuff, simply because it was really bad for business. Mm. And also, I don't think quite, he quite, he, I think he'd seen a lot of violence, especially inside with people who used it as a, in a bullying manner. And I didn't, he didn't like bullies at all. I mean, the few references, like I, I might mention the craze to him, and he had no time for them. So he just said, a bunch of bullies. He said, they, were, they weren't intelligent criminals. He said they never did any great bank robberies or anything. He said they were just bullies. They used to just kind of, you know, live off other people and bully other people. And he didn't like people like that. Um, so he felt like he was like a libertarian. He's doing his stuff and he should be left alone to do it. And that's the same for all the other criminals. They should be left alone to get on with it by the criminals. They shouldn't be taxed or anything. They should just be left alone. So people like the case, he never really had any time for them. Uh, he, he acknowledged they were big criminals, but they weren't what he considered a criminal to be. For him, a criminal was someone who was highly intelligent and could organise and could, you know, and people like The likability was important to him. Yeah. It's he almost was
0: specialism ex- almost, isn't it?
1: Yeah, because it ex- he was like, like inside or out. He was always very polite. And every time everyone who would meet him would be amazed that he was a criminal, that he'd done 20 years, because he was so polite and he was so well turned out and everything. and Especially with women, he was just he just had that old school way with him Mm. and it was consistent he wasn't like a show he just did it wherever he went um so that was just part of his character and i think gets back to his upbringing i suppose
0: let me ask the audience here okay so um if i was into international drugs i'd be terrified wouldn't you every day every knock on the door every sound you hear in the middle of the night i would be absolutely terrified but but maybe just a show of hands who would be like me and just be terrified every minute of the day that someone's going to get you yeah, huh. you've got to be. I think you've got to be really mentally strong to pursue this sort of life, yeah. haven't you? There was uh, when I first drove with
1: him. We kind of we had this thing where you're somewhere aware you've got police surveillance on you. You've got car an odd car following you that's there way too long. And I think when you get police surveillance on, my first thoughts were you've got to shut up shop, you've got to move location, and his was like, no, you just carry on. You just you can see they're there. You just accept and you carry on. And then you start seeing more cars, or you might a tracker might get found. Like, a, like once there was a one of the drivers went over a speed bump, and the tracker come off. They're putting trackers under the cars now. There's some, you know. Now's the time we shut up shop. No, no, no. We know they're there. And it, for him, it was an occupational hazard. At some point, police surveillance are going to come on you, but chances are they'll come off you once they don't see anything, and that's the way it works. It's not like they stay on you. Hmm. They have to find some justification to stay with you. And he was like, "Well, as long as you're acting professionally, nondescript." Yeah. Then they shouldn't find anything, they should go off. And plus, he dealt with a lot of it, it was always Class B and Class C. And the police operations didn't last that long unless they found something. Whereas with Class A, they'd stay on you for months and months. So, one thing when he came out, he didn't deal in cocaine or heroin. That was the practical reason, because he thought you get police operations on you and they just don't go off. Mm. He says with with the the lower grade ones, he said they'll be on you six weeks, they'll be gone. And they might come back on you again, but you just keep looking, do all your surveillance stuff, keep changing your phones. Uh, stay nondescript, stick to the code names and everything. And it's all those little rules you learn to the schools you went. Yeah. Um, so,
0: okay, mm. So, we've only got two or three minutes left, guys, and we're almost run, and run out of time. Has anyone got any brief questions for Jason before we uh, go and cool down outside? Oh. <laughs> any questions, anybody? No, I haven't mentioned the guest, Yeah. Sorry, but okay. I'm just wondering what, what, what got you out of the cycle of sort of repeating your dad's patterns. Uh, one thing: My
1: parents got divorced. He we went to prison when I was like 11 for armed robbery. She divorced him a few years later. Kind of the prison experience broke the family down. But her worry was me and my brother would follow my dad into crime. And so for many years we didn't. And the, she was right because the next 13 out of the 15 years he was inside, and he came out when I was 25, 26. We'd establish what we wanted to do. My brother was a builder at the time. I was doing. I was a struggling animator in London at the time in Whitechapel. Uh, but and then he came out. And he was the youngest 45 year old I'd ever met. He, he came out and he was like, he had money as soon as he came out and he had phones going constantly. He was all fit and healthy from the gym. Hmm. And he was just, he was up at five in the morning and he would go on till midnight. And you think, Christ's sake! He's like I should be. It was just, it was just, re- it's just relentless. I'd never. He, met he didn't drink like or that. smoke, did he? No, he didn't drink or smoke. He was very anti-smoking. Mm. Um, he Used to tell my brother and sister off for smoking all the time. Barely ever drunk. He, only, he never drunk in public. Mm. Uh, it's, I think it's like an old school sort of thing. You, never get, you don't get drunk in public because yeah. you drop your guard and you got your reputation. So, so he was anti-drink, anti-smoking. He's, I suppose his voice was the crime thing. Yeah, that was his his pleasure.
0: Okay. Um, Any more questions? I'm very well. We're about to finish. Yes.
1: Um, well, in his later years, I think after... You, you, you um, after the animation, I worked with my dad for a number of years. Then I did some graphic novels. And then I reached the point where I realised I need to change because I can't make a living out of art. And I, can't, I don't want to make a living out of crime. So I went away... What's I, That's not what I'm asking. I was, <laughs> was going to say, and then I went on and studied a degree in psychology. And then I started to work with people with brain injuries for about five years and during that period is when I wrote the book, um, and it's only now I've taken a break from that at the moment. But for five years, it was all working with people with brain injuries. And, and you're writing thing.
0: another book now, aren't you?
1: I'm writing another book, and that has to do with people with brain injuries who I've worked with. Um, so the psychology things really interest me, and there was a lot of that in the early drafts of the book, but it wasn't compatible with the crime so much. But psychology is something really, I'm really, I really love reading about, and I want to do something a little bit different with that as well.
0: And final thing, are you doing a book signing this afternoon? I will be, yes. Obviously. Do you know what time that is in the new schedule? I don't know. It's, okay. uh, is it straight after? It's straight after this in the book signing area. Okay. Okay, that's great. Then. Great. Well, thank you ever so much for coming, everybody. Yeah, okay, okay. Thanks thanks for you. okay, thanks. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, I had a lot of fun doing it. If you want to read the book, just head to Amazon or any good website and search for The Old Man and Me by Jason Wilson. And CrimeCon is back in London next year and also in Glasgow in September. So go ahead and buy your ticket now, claiming the discount with the code UKTC. I'll speak to you soon. Cheerio. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky?